Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I got up and uh, ran and jumped over a, uh, a small wall, and that dude was kind of on the wrong side of the wall, so I dragged him over and uh, started returning fire and looked over, and my team lead had been hit. Hi there, everyone. I'm your host, Bram Conley, and this is my podcast. Each week, I tackle a theory, unpack a skill, or answer questions on one of the themes of leadership, resilience, or human optimization. Being a modern warrior is all about self-development and mastery. Leadership is learned through the accumulation of knowledge. Resilience develops only through adversity. And human optimization is gained through research and experimentation. My mission is simple to make you understand the following, that you are the greatest mission. So this then is the Warrior You podcast, a podcast devoted to the warrior within and the physical warrior you were born to be. Join me on this path and together we'll learn more about leadership, resiliency and human optimization. I promise. Before I get some random person to read out this week's podcast review, I want to say a few words about my sponsors and also give you some discount codes for their amazing products. Firstly, Aussie Strength. This week, Aussie Strength sent me a heap of new bumper plates to try out. 2.5 kilograms and 5 kilogram bumper plates. These are full-sized Olympic weights that you can dump if required. The 2.5s are awesome for working on your snatch and cleans. They let you get to the bar in the right position and to do the lift. They also sent me their bomb-proof 10 and 15 kilogram Olympic plates and I have to say, the quality is amazing. It's easy to see why these guys are dominating the gym fit-out space here in Australia. Aussie Strength are a great veteran-owned business in their own right and they are crushing the business-to-business gym fit-out scene. Alright, and they deliver direct to the public too. They actually have a dedicated Warrior U page on their Aussie Strength website. So go check it out for amazing deals on tactical weight training equipment. That's www.aussiestrength.com.au forward slash warrior you or one word forward slash. And my newest sponsor, Ironside Coffee. And they do more than just coffee, these guys. Have you seen the giant wooden Australian flags? They also do hoodies, hats, and of course coffee. They have a coffee van in Canberra too, and they'll rock up to your place of work if you book it in. I'm super honoured to be part of their marketing strategy and I really want this business to grow. So please help me help them. And to do that, you have to drink more coffee. Go to their website and use the code WARRIORU for 10% off. All right, Matthew, do you want to read out this week's review, please, mate? Yep. All right. This is a five-star review from Tony from Bribey Island. WARRIORU is for all of us wanting to strive for more. Hey, mate. I have been following you for a while, but only recently subscribed to the podcast after getting up to date on Jocko and other similar podcasts. You are on the same level as Jocko, my friend, in my opinion. Your guests so far have been awesome and your articulation and ability to hold a conversation rivals Tim Ferriss. 
Thank you, Bran. And keep moving forward, mate. Best wishes from Tony and family. Thanks for that, Matthew. And lastly, just a reminder about the Warrior U course for those looking to prepare themselves for military service. Go check it out, www.warrioru.com.au. The course covers the cultural aspects of the ADF, uh, equipment, navigation, survival and fieldcraft training. There's tests at the end of each module and I'm sure that the glide path will help anyone who wants to be successful joining the ADF. So go and check it out. All right, this week my guest is Sean Cober, better known as Cobes. Sean's army service saw him deploy not only to Iraq but also to Afghanistan where he was employed as a sniper and awarded the commendation for gallantry. But that's not really what we're going to talk about. Sean is currently the head strength and conditioning coach at the world-renowned MMA and Muay Thai camp Tiger Muay Thai in Phuket, Thailand. Due to this highly regarded position, he has more recently been focused on preparing high-level fighters for bouts in the UFC, Bellator, One Championship and other world-class combat-based organisations. Muay Thai. We discuss mindset, training, resilience, nutrition and all manners of things human optimization. He's a bloody good bloke and I'm sure you will hear that he is an absolute wealth of knowledge in the strength and conditioning space. I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I enjoyed recording it. Sean, Sean Cobra. Cobes. Let's just call you, let's go with Cobes. How are you, man? Mate, I'm really well. I'm really well living the, living the dream over in Thailand. Uh, yeah, really enjoying myself over here. Welcome to the Warrior You podcast. This isn't your first podcast, is it? Uh, it is actually, mate. I'm honoured to be on your podcast. Boom. Look at that. I just finished listening to uh, the Declan and the Ian podcast over the last few days. So good content, good information, good chats. Yeah, it's good. And and actually, you've been you've been the reason that I've interviewed some other people because you've been dropping dropping names in my lap throughout the throughout the year. In fact, I think I've been following you on social media or on Instagram since pretty much since I started on Instagram in at the end of 2016 start of 2017 it's like you're one of the initial dudes I was following and probably one of the only people I haven't cut away in that time <laughs> <laughs> thanks man I appreciate that I've I uh, got onto you as well uh, and obviously we, we know a few people uh, mutual friends and things like that and uh you know it's it's good to have that connection and to build that network so it's it's awesome to be able to bounce off each other yeah and the justin huggett um podcast that i did i mean that that did quite well it was one of the early earlier ones so i wasn't really very refined back then but he's such a champion guy and it doesn't matter that we don't have all the same you know him and i have differing opinions on a few things but he's such a he's such a good bloke and he's um and he's very well well-tempered in, in his sort of position that, you know, I really I want to thank you for putting me onto him. He's, um, yeah, I really enjoy his company and he's got a great family there up in Townsville and, you know, he just does his thing. Awesome, mate. Oh, and Swiss 8 as well, Adrian Suter. <laughs> hey, uh, have you interviewed um, Tristan Rose from Blind Tiger Yoga? Uh, no, but I've heard his name bounced around. Yeah, add him to the list, mate. It'll be a good chat. Yeah, and so what I was going to say is, all these people have something in common, including yourself and myself, other than the fact that, you know, I have a no dickhead rule and I know you do as well. But I also, <laughs> yeah, I also, I don't like to see veterans as, as victims. And I think that's something that we all sort of have this same, this same feeling. Yeah, anyway, we'll get into that maybe a bit later on. 
Let's let's talk quickly about about your career. I was actually going to join the army when I was seventeen. I was living in Darwin at the time. Uh, I'd been out of home for a couple of years. Uh, left home, left school, left my family. Had an abusive stepdad, so I bailed out. And uh, I was working in Darwin, and I was I was going to join the army. And then uh, I got a got an offer down in Sydney to play rugby. So I went down there for a couple of years. Had a few injuries. I was a decent player. Realised, you know. Uh, a realist as well, so I realised I was probably not going to make pro, so I thought I'd look at something else and uh, decided to move back to Darwin and join the Army. Uh, so I joined 2006, uh, went through Kapuka, then went to Singo in uh, in a holding platoon for about five or six weeks, and then uh, our whole uh, IET platoon actually got sent back to Darwin to do our IETs at 5-7. So that was, a, that was a really cool experience, and then uh, I think we marched out like late... 2006, uh, and then we pretty much, you know, started training to go to Iraq. So we went to Iraq 2007, uh, Timor 2008, 2009, Afghan 2010, 2011, and uh, I discharged 2012 and uh, um, did my PT course. Uh, met a girl, moved to Tasmania for five years, uh, and then we broke up two years ago. And I moved over to Thailand, so I've been over here as head coach of Tiger Muay Thai for uh, the last two years. Did you join the army to get out of Darwin? Uh, no, I actually, uh, actually really liked Darwin. So you, you it was got, funny, man, because yeah. uh, uh, like our whole platoon, uh, when we were in Singo one morning, the whole platoon had formed up uh, on parade, and uh, uh, I think the platoon sergeant came out and he's like, right, who wants to go to Darwin? Fucking no one put their hands up, and I was like, me. And then he's like, all right, everyone's joining Cobra in Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got, motor- hating it, Who's got a motorbike okay. license? Who's got a motorbike license? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hands straight. Or who yeah. wants one? So, so that was a pretty busy, bloody period, mate. Like that was operationally bang, bang, bang straight after it. Yeah. Uh, so, like I said, I think I was only out of IETs for about nine months, eight or nine months before we went to Iraq, and um, uh, and I think we we're back in country for about ten months before we went to East Timor, and then maybe. 15 months before we went to Afghan. So, mate, I'm, uh, I'm really grateful that, um, you know, I, I got in at that time and I was around at that time. So, uh, you know, we're obviously very, very busy. Um, but, I mean, as an infantry soldier, that's why you join the army. You know, it's like if you don't deploy, then, you know, I think I've spoken to you about this before via social media about the – I like to use the rugby analogy. You know, if, I'm, if I play rugby for four years, you know, I'm training day in, day out. If I don't get a if I don't get a run in first grade, then like, what's the point? Yeah, true that. And so when when you went to Iraq, did you feel like you were well prepared given the given the ten months since coming out of IATs and then straight into Iraq? How did you feel? Did, like I look back on on my time, and I got de- deployed to Somalia in ninety in ninety three, but I'd I'd been in the battalion for a year at that point. Um, so and I look back on that and go, Jesus, I wouldn't deploy that. 19-year-old kid to Somalia when I look at the photos. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we had, a, we had a lot of young dudes. And, I mean, I was, I was kind of a little bit older. I'd, I'd done a few things. And by the time I joined the Army, I was 20. I had my 21st at Kapuka. And um, I had my – I turned 22 in Iraq. But we had dudes that were, like, just turned 18, 19, you know. So um, I was probably a little bit better off than they were. Um, I'd already been out of home for a number of years. Uh, so I think I was – reasonably well prepared um in terms of uh, some of the other guys that were a little bit younger and 
like had literally just left school and joined the army. You know, it was a little bit of a shock. But uh, look, man, we had a we had a really good platoon. Um, we had an awesome platoon commander, uh, platoon sergeant. We had really good staff, and a lot of the boys, uh, our section commanders, had already done a tour to Iraq. So, you know, they'd. Um, they pretty much set us up, man, and you know we had a, a, a really good, um, a really good crew, uh, really professional, um, really respectful. You know we trusted each other, and we had a we had a good bond and good teamwork. So it was a good lead in. We had really good lead in training, and because we basically knew pretty much once we got sent to Darwin with our IETs, we had a company over in Afghanistan at the time. We had a company over in Iraq at the time. Uh, it was still 5-7, and then whilst those guys were overseas, 5-7 uh, split into 5 and 7 RR. Um, so all those boys were coming back just as we'd marched out, uh, and they were pretty much, you know, taking the lead for going through all of our lead-up training. Um, so we pretty much knew, basically, once we got to Darwin, that, you know, it was game time. Uh, so we had we had quite a, quite a bit of time to prepare ourselves mentally and get ourselves in the right um, in the right state of mind and, and uh, you know go through some solid preparations. How would you compare Iraq and Afghanistan compared to each other? What do you reckon? Very different. Um, the we're on OBG three, and that was it was pretty much all mounted, you know, and we were basically uh, it was all it was all OPs pretty much. Um, targeting IED layers that were targeting, you know, the American convoys. So got in a few little stinks. We got hit with mortars, and one of the boys got shot. And you know, but it wasn't too, it wasn't too crazy. Whereas Afghan was all dismounted, uh, and we we're in we we're in a bit of a shitty area. Uh, so you know, there was there was always something going on. The threat was always high. Yeah, very different, man. Very different. Obviously, different roles. I was in a, um, I was a lead scout of a section in Iraq, uh, and then when I went to Afghanistan, I was in a sniper team. So, very different roles, different area of operations, different threats, uh, dismounted versus mounted. Yeah, yeah. And some, I talked to some of the infantry guys, especially snipers in there, and I talked to them about our trip in 2010, and it, and it was it was on like Donkey Kong in 2010. It was a good year. Uh, well, good, good or bad, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, I thought it was yeah. pretty cool. But yeah, did you deploy very far ahead of the of your main body or anything like that as a sniper? Did you get Did you get the chance to actually go out and do two or three days ahead or or anything like that? We did a few times. Um, the majority of the time, I mean, the first six months we had we had a uh, we had three four man teams uh, in our battle group, and we got split up between the different valleys. So one was out west. One was north and one was east of TK. So basically the first six months we had those teams, you know, I was at Cop Marshall for six months and that was basically my, my AO. And we had another team out west and another team out east. So after the first six months, then we started um, linking up and, and pushing out into, you know, bigger battle group ops. So that was that was cool, man. But, I mean, the, the first six months we... We just kicked around Marshall. That's where most of the shit was happening. So uh, that's where we were needed the most. Best best job in the world being a sniper, isn't it? You get left alone, away from the flagpole, and whatever you're looking through, you know, whenever you're looking through those sites, there's the opportunity to pull the trigger. It's a good job. Oh, mate, it was awesome. It was it was it, it was funny because I'd never actually joined the joined the army to be a sniper. <laughs> I joined to be. I actually wanted to be an assault pioneer when I joined. <laughs> Um, but then I got posted to Darwin and uh, there wasn't anything up there. So 
then I was looking at recon. I got nominated for that course. I had a few things come up, so I couldn't take that course. And then I got nominated for snipers. So that was just something that eventuated and, you know, fucking hard, man. But one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. And I don't know, there'll be, there'll be friends of yours listening to this that probably don't know that you're the recipient of a commendation of gallantry um, because you keep that shit sort of close hold. But let's just talk about that for a few seconds. Yeah. Um, so we got into country, I think, September 2010, linked up with 6RAR. We're doing a handover takeover. Um, spent uh, probably about 10 days doing partner patrols with them. Pretty much the first patrol that we went out on our own after they'd, uh, they'd flown out, uh, we got brassed up, man. So my four-man sniper team got hit. We were doing a conducting a satellite patrol uh, separate from the main body who were conducting a search of a, of a koala area for munitions and, you know. And as you know, man, the... Moving in and out of the green zone was typically uh, one of those one of those areas where they'd, they'd like to target us. So we were conducting a satellite patrol and uh, we just got to a certain point or maybe 800 metres to a kilometre away from the main body and uh, atmospherics just started going downhill. Um, <laughs> these guys were coming out and, uh, you know, dragging their goats into their koalas and, you know, the kids started clearing out shit like that. We're like, fuck, man, something's going to happen here. Like... We just tell something was going on and uh, we're just about to start moving and, and get out of that area and, uh, you know, start manoeuvring. And uh, we saw this this random dude walking along the footpad and uh, he hadn't seen us at the time and he was probably about maybe 100, 150 metres away. Let's sit here and watch him for a little bit, get, a little, get into a little bit of cover. And then as he got closer and closer and closer, we uh, were like, right, let's bail this dude up. So... Uh, you know, we came out, told him to stop, dragged him over. He got to a certain point, didn't want to, didn't want to move. And uh, I went through, you know, gave him a spray and a pat down and uh, just kind of checked in on him. Um, and, you know, he was kind of murmuring to himself and, uh, you know, basically knew that there was fucking shit happening and he'd, he'd found himself in a position where he didn't want to be. And then uh, all of a sudden it just it just kicked off, man, and everything lit up and, uh, you know, hit the deck and put all my shit away, started crawling to cover, got up and uh, ran and jumped over a, uh, a small wall and that dude was kind of on the wrong side of the wall, so I dragged him over and uh, started returning fire and looked over and my team leader had been hit um, and he was actually fucking on his ass, firing back single-handedly, dragging his uh, tourniquet out of his pocket and, and trying to put that on. Um, so myself and one of the other boys, Tamps, uh, started hooking in. Um, luckily, so Tamps was carrying the SR25, and luckily I was actually carrying the uh, the sty with the GLA. So, you know, it's like, man, sometimes, you know, when you're in their backyard, you can't actually see where they're firing from. You just know the, you know, the, the general direction. So I just started lobbing um, HE and, you know, put their heads down, and uh, one of the boys ran over, Rob, and uh, put the tourniquet on, and then I moved over and we dragged Seamus into cover, and, uh, and then the rest of the team caught up with us, um, bagged him up and uh, patched him up and did the best we could. Um, and then kind of continued the fight from there. Uh, so that was the first time. Uh, the second time, uh, that was October 13. Uh, like I said, only been in country for like two weeks. Uh, and then the second time, uh, we were kind of in this overwatch position. It was supposed to be a four-man team, so our shit kind of happened beforehand and we lost one of our guys. 
So it only ended up being three of us. Our team leader at the time was away on holiday. So it ended up being myself, uh, Tams, and an engineer who was carrying the Mag 58. Uh, so we ended up in this Overwatch position, which wasn't where we were supposed to be. Uh, we were supposed to patrol through the green zone, but then we lost one of our boys. So we had to kind of change our plans. And we ended up in this Overwatch position, uh, which wasn't great given the terrain, um, but it was what it was, man. You, you know, it's like you got to make the best of the shitty situation. And basically because we had the engineer with us, we're like, man, we've been here before. We're a little bit concerned about this. And we'd actually been up on that hill the day that Seamus got hit. Uh, and we fucking basically sat on ID that luckily didn't go off. But uh, yeah, anyway, he, he searched, found an ID. So we kind of, you know, sat, uh, set up not too close from it, but in the limited amount of cover that we had. Uh, and basically the, the boys were rolling through the green zone, conducting searches uh, and same thing, like atmospheric started deteriorating and we're like, all right, these, we saw a couple of dudes that were coming out and kind of, you know, keeping an eye on us and um, we break contact and, and find a little bit of cover so that we could, uh, you know, call it through and, um, and uh, set up a, an LZ and uh, go through that process. So, yeah, kind of uh, two big scenarios there that, that that kicked off, but you know there was obviously a lot of other little skirmishes, but the, those were the main uh, those are the main things that happened. Yeah, it's interesting because I know where I was on on nearly all of those you know dates as well. Like on the eighteenth of October is when we were in Zabat Calais, you know, fighting for our yeah. lives, and then you know, and what what we often forget is that you know we're off, we're off doing something in one area, you know, you're, you're there fighting for your bloody life, you got. You know, dudes hit everywhere. Blackhawks full of oh, women, blood and shit. And then just down the road, there's another unit suffering the same sort of fate. It's it's crazy over there, man. Like you, like I said, we were at Cop Marshall, so we had a you know relatively small AO, but there was a there was a base that was only like you know eight to ten k's away. We had no idea what the fuck was happening up there. Yeah. You know, you're kind of in your own little bubble. There was all this shit happening. You probably remember this as well. There was all this shit happening back in Australia. Like there was a floods in Brisbane. Um, Victoria was fucking on fire, you know? So there was all this shit that was happening back home, but we were in our own little bubble, man. We didn't know what was going on anywhere. And to be honest, like we didn't really care. We, we, we had our tight little team and, and we looked after each other and, that was what mattered at the time. So we had to keep ourselves focused and we had to keep ourselves together and, um, you know, push through as a team. Are you more resilient as a person now from those experiences than what you would have been before? Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. Mm. Um, it's one of those things. I mean, uh, coming back from deployment, I think, uh, to be honest, we kind of touched on it earlier, but uh, to be honest, I think that's that's part of the PTSD problem is that people come back from deployments and they've been through these these um, situations and, you know, they get back and they go to a cafe and someone's whinging and bitching about their fucking coffee not being hot enough and it's like, come on, man, what, what the fuck? No, but to be you fair, know, dude, to be fair, I mean, there is nothing worse than <laughs> fucking cold cat milk coffee. Like that's. Oh, I knew you were going to go there, Bram. <laughs> like, I mean, come on. Um, no, no, I, I, I agree, and I, and I, and I think some of the reasons why, and I think for young leaders, if they want to set their platoon sections teams up for success, they have to look at 
what may possibly go wrong and then do visualisation with their teams and say, hey, this could happen to us. You may need to put these tourniquets on a guy's arm and a guy's shoulder, a guy's leg. You know, you may see sucking chest wounds. You may do this. You may kill a person, you know, and, and by the way, that will set you with a new frame of reference for the future. But I think when they turn a blind eye and go, let's just hope, well, hope's not a fucking strategy. You know, let's just hope that nothing goes wrong. I hope we don't get in contact or hope, you know, whereas whereas guys like, you know, especially snipers and, and, and SF guys as well is like, geez, I hope we get in a contact. Geez, I hope it's big. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, mate, I think you made a really good point then um, because it's something that our, our four-man team did before we went to Afghanistan was, you know, we sat down together and we're like, hey, look, boys, you know, this is our job. We may pull the trigger, we may not. Like, it just depends where we go. We've got no fucking control over that. But at the end of the day, like, we need to be, be prepared for anything, you know, and we had a, we, um, you know, had a, had a really good preparation and we, we did a, an amazing, um, I think it was like a week to 10 days of like super advanced first aid training, fairly realistic. Um, where was that down in Wagga, I think before we went over. So that kind of, you know, and that was Smithy and, um, uh, snowy Jake Morgan, I think got hit whilst, whilst we were down there. So obviously we're doing this um, advanced first aid training and uh, a couple of boys got killed and, and we're like, all right, this is, you know, we're, we're going to be deploying in a month or two, you know, this shit's real. We need to make sure that we're fucking on top of this, you know? So we had that, that expectation before we went over there. I think you do make a good point in that some people didn't have those conversations. You know, they didn't have those conversations within their team. They didn't have those conversations with themselves. Um, so their expectation, I don't think they probably set themselves up right mentally. And again, that's, that's probably where a lot of the, uh, the issues come in when people do come back from, from those deployments. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, let's have a change of pace. So, because I want to, I want to talk about fitness and resilience and training and the like. But first of all, yeah, I let's get into this, that. bro. I love this. We shit. had to get through the army stuff first, dude. Um, <laughs> and a lot of and a, and a lot of people listening to this are infantry or ADF um, personnel that that listen to the podcast. And it is important for them to hear the stories and to know that there's life after the ADF and that you can go through some critical incidents like you went through and come out the other side of it being bigger, better, badder, stronger. But I basically just gave you all the adjectives, didn't I, that you like to use for your own. But um, Love it, mate. Yeah, but before we get into the, the hard um, anvil bashing, grinding, turning yourself into a better version of you, let's talk quickly about the, uh, the breakup. That, that breakup because it's – when I saw that post on Instagram, dude, I was like, you fucking legend. Because it's one of those things that people people get stuck in a rut and they get stuck in, in relationships where – and you can even be in love with someone, right? But at the end of the day, if there's if there's something out there that you've got to – then you've got to have that adult conversation and people don't have those adult conversations, they get stuck. So just tell us quickly about that if you can. Yeah, so uh, like I said, I discharged 2012. Um, I've just gotten out of a two-and-a-half-year relationship and I was kind of floating around, did my PT course – Met a girl in Darwin, really cool chick. Uh, we kind of hung around for a couple of months. When we first met, I knew that she was moving back to um, back to Tasmania, come out of a, a long-term relationship as well a few months earlier. Um, so we were just kind of, you know, enjoying each other's company and kind of a random story, man. I actually went over to the, uh, the States for a Bucks party uh, to Vegas and then did a boys trip through Canada, snowboarding and, and whatnot, had New Year's over there. But uh, whilst I was over there, I was like, oh, man, I really miss this chick. So when I went over there, she just moved back to Tasmania. So I had to spend a month over there. And, and then I was like, oh, I really miss this chick. I'll, I'll 
you know, touch base with her and I'll maybe tag on a, an extra week down in Tasmania. Um, so I did that. And whilst I was down there, uh, we had a chat and I was like, look, I don't really have too much going on down at the moment. Do you mind if I, you know, came down here and spend a little bit of time together and then we can book some travel in 2013. And she said, sweet, let's do it. And I'd only known it for a couple of months. So I pretty much packed up my whole life and sold everything I owned. And two weeks later, I was on a, I was on a flight down to Tasmania, which no, was pretty no, nice. co- no coping strategies going on there at all, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. But, uh, you know, we were, we we're realistic from the start. And, and, uh, you know, I said, look, if it doesn't work out, I said, you're a really cool chick and I'd like to spend some more time with you. I said, if it doesn't work out, you know, no stress. I've got my backpack. I'll just fucking jump on a flight and go back to my mum's place and then go traveling, whatever. Um, so that was kind of how it was from the start. That was the, the expectation and, you know, didn't put any pressure on ourselves. And, uh, literally, you know, six, five, six months after I met her, we'd been living together for, you know, two months and, and then we went and traveled the world for, you know, six months in 2013. And we pretty much built an awesome lifestyle down in Tasmania. Uh, we'd work eight or nine months a year and then we'd go traveling. I'd typically come to Thailand uh, and train for a month and she'd go to India or Bali and do some yoga teacher training and, and things like that. She was a PT as well. But basically over the years, you know, we never planned on staying in Tasmania the whole time. Uh, we spent, you know, planned on a couple of years and then we're going to move up north uh, towards Queensland, a little bit uh, better weather or, or, or the first time I came to Thailand, I actually wanted to, to come over here. So a couple of years went on and, um, you know, we kept going back there and I fucking hated the winter, man. Um, but, you know, we had some conversations a few times and I wanted to go and live in New Zealand as well for, for six months to a year and spend some time with my family and do some travel over there and a little bit of work. And we got back from one of our trips, uh, I think maybe 2015 or 16, and we we're a little bit rocky. And she said, hey, look, I can't, I don't, I'm not happy with where the relationship's at right now. If you want to go to New Zealand, then you go to New Zealand. And I was like, well, I know what that's going to mean for the relationship. So I kind of put that off and stayed in Tasmania and work on the relationship and, you know, we're really strong and we we came out of that uh, really good. 2017 came around uh, and, you know, I'd pretty much been in Tassie for four and a half, almost five years by then. Uh, And we just had that conversation. I said, hey, look, what's the deal? I want to go and live in Thailand or I want to move up to Brisbane. Um, And she said, well, I I pretty much want to stay in Tasmania and, you know, build build my business and be around my friends and my family and things like that. And I was like, well, all right, that's, that's awesome. And I'm, I'm so happy for you. Um, but you know, the plan was never for me, for us to stay here and obviously things have changed and you know, it's not something that it's not something where I feel myself growing. I kind of felt a little bit stagnant. Uh, don't get me wrong. I was, I was super happy with her. Amazing girl. Um, I loved her and I cared about her, but it just, it, I, I wasn't moving forward. Um, she was, um, and we just had to have that conversation and we had an adult conversation about it. No voices were raised. You know, we were very respectful of each other and we're both very honest. We spoke our mind. And, uh, so what we basically ended up, ended up doing was saying, Hey, look, we, we still love each other and care about each other rather than breaking it off and giving away this last five years, you know, let's just have a break and do our own thing for a little bit. I'll go and live in Thailand and, and do a little bit of work over there. You stay in Tasmania, you know, if it comes to two months, three months, six months down the track, then we can look at revisiting this. So right now let's not call it quits. Let's not break up. Let's just have a break. Uh, and then we can make our decision from there. And, and we both agreed, man. And this is, you know, probably going to be a little bit controversial, but we actually said, you know, if you meet someone and you start seeing someone, that's fine. If that doesn't work out and we want to get back together, then, you know, we can roll with that. So we're, we're both very honest and open about it. And, uh, and she actually came to visit me a couple of months later 
in Thailand. And I, when I first came to Thailand, I was actually uh, on an internship uh, contract with Tiger Muay Thai. So I was basically working for free for them. I worked for them for supposed to be two months. And then I got a, uh, after a month, um, you know, they saw some value in me and they offered me a full-time job. Uh, so when she came to visit me, I'd just been offered that full-time job and, uh, you know, we're talking about getting back together and, and I basically said, Hey, look, I'm, I'm, I've just been offered this full-time job. This is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. You know, unless you're willing to come over here to, you know, basically support me this time, then I don't see this. I don't, I don't see us getting back together. I don't want to do the, the long distance thing. And, and, and she pretty much said, look, I'm, I'm in a really good place with work and, um, business and family and things like that in Tasmania right now. So, we just kind of gave each other a hug and a kiss and, you know, waved a goodbye and, and wished you all the best. So, yeah. yeah. Man, I just, think it's, I just think it's so refreshing to hear someone have a, an adult conversation that, you know, that you move, drifting apart, going in different directions, have different different needs. And, and when you, when you socialise that, I thought, yeah, there should be some more of that going on, you know, because if you're not bringing the best out of each other or if you're not supporting each other, you know, then, then it's, it's almost um, – it's almost like selfish, just one person getting everything and the other person just being, yeah. Um, so why Thailand? Um, so I, Laura and I actually visited Thailand for the first time in 2013. So like I said, we went on that six-month trip, uh, travelled through Southeast Asia for three months and then went to Europe for three months. Uh, and we were over in Patong, man, and Patong's like a little bit of a party place and we'd spent a couple of days over there. We'd been on the road backpacking for about a month at that stage. Uh, and a couple of mates had trained at Tiger Muay Thai the year before. Um, and kind of did a little bit of an internet search and, and found we, we basically wanted to go and uh, hit some training rather than just, you know, lazing on the beach and drinking beer and, and shit like that. So we ended up coming over to Tiger Muay Thai and trained here for a week. Uh, absolutely loved it. Continued our travel through, you know, Southeast Asia and then went over to went over to Europe for, six mo- uh, for three months. Sorry, On the way back to Australia, you know, we thought, We'd been in Europe for, for, for three months drinking beer and eating eating pastry and spaghetti and uh, all that sort of stuff, living the good life. Uh, so we decided to stop in at Tiger Muay Thai and, and spend two weeks training, getting ourselves back in shape. And we used that time to put together our resumes and um, you know apply for jobs back in Tassie. So, uh, so that's what we did. We rolled back in, did two weeks of training. Uh, and then the following year, I think we traveled through Nepal and India and Mauritius uh, Malaysia, New Zealand. Uh, the next year, I I came back to Thailand for a month and trained. Uh, Lauren went to India for a month and trained in yoga, and then we met up and you know went through did did a couple of months travel together, and then the following year again, I came back to Thailand, trained for a month. She went to Bali, uh, took a yoga teacher training, uh, and just the first time I came out, I, I fell in love with the place. I saw uh, I saw the gym, I saw the people. I mean. If you've never been here before, it's a street that's probably about, it's called Soy Taib, it's called Fit Street. Um, it's on the other side of the island of Phuket from, from Patong, so it's a lot quieter. Uh, it's, a, it's a road that's about one and a half to two kilometres long. Uh, and there's heaps of gyms, man. We've got Tiger Muay Thai, Unit 27, um, Dragon Muay Thai, Phuket Top Team, Titan Fitness. I mean, there's probably there's probably seven to ten different gyms along the street you know the whole street's catered towards health and fitness uh you know people coming from all over the world to change their lives to you know kickstart their health and fitness to give themselves kick up the ass to you know to to go through the drug rehab process and uh, it's just an amazing place man really fucking really awesome place to be with uh, a lot of like-minded people i was just curious about it um and Phuket's a beautiful place, beautiful weather, awesome beaches, uh, tropical lifestyle. 
um, it was just it was just something that kind of caught my attention and something that I wanted to follow up and uh, give myself an opportunity to to you know at least spend six months to a year over here. And uh, I guess I got that opportunity once Lauren and I did go our separate ways. I've stuck around since, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I went from an intern um, to a full-time coach within a month. Uh, and then I became head coach four to five months later, which I've, I've uh, you know, which I've done for the last 18 months or so. Yeah, I'm just looking on, I'm just looking on Google Maps now. It is. It, it's, in, it's in Phuket, but it's, uh, it's on the other side of the island from Patong. Family and I have been down to, down Palm Village Way, down the bottom. What does a, a day in the life of Cobes look like? What are you doing? Um, it depends on it depends on what classes I've got, what what, uh, what clients I've got at the moment, which is you know it, it changes day to day, uh, week to week. It's a pretty transient place. Um, you know, there's obviously people that live here full time, but a lot of the time people are visiting. We get high level fighters coming in for you know it might be four to twelve weeks for a fight camp, uh, and then we've got a lot of people that are traveling that are only here for this, this drop in. People that are only here for a day, there's people that come for a week that are just kind of passing through people for two weeks, a month, people that kind of, you know, stay here long term. So, yeah, man, it really just depends. But the, my, my main class that I coach is uh, strength and conditioning at one o'clock. So I pretty much try and block up my, my clients around the middle of the day. Um, so basically I get up in the morning, um, I go for a swim, I have a little bit of a stretch, I do some study while I have a coffee. And then I, you know, I, I write, in my, write in my diary what I've got planned for the day. Uh, and then I'll head into work, maybe depending what time I'm, I'm, I'm training, depending what t- what's going on with my clients. I might train early or uh, I might have some breakfast and then I'll, I'll punch out, you know, four to six hours straight uh, with clients and, um, and classes and things like that. Uh, and then the afternoon, I'll, I'll typically get into some admin stuff, eat again, maybe train if I haven't trained in the morning. Yeah, and I, I kind of like to keep my, my afternoons and my evenings free so I can you know, just chill out and read or go to the movies or go to the beach, swim my pool, get massages, hang out with people. Just, what, uh, what a shit yeah, life. Pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty rubbish, mate. <laughs> what's, um, what's the go with the, there's heaps of explosive plyometrics that you, that you use. And I've tried to do some of them following you for ages. Right. So the one in particular that, because plyometrics isn't just about jumping, right? There's other versions of it too, like the the medicine ball, the, the heavy weighted medicine balls into the walls on those different angles. And I I've, yeah. I was filming myself. I thought I'm gonna put this on Instagram. This is awesome. And so I was doing them. I was doing them. I was doing them right. And and you know with a, with a bit of bit of judo and and the likes, you know, over the years and 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 BJJ with the boys and. And, you know, and being very right-hand dominant, left-eye dominant, anyway, whatever. And I was throwing these balls against this wall. I was going, I'm fucking killing this. And then I switched to the other side and I was like, ah, it was like Mr. Burns off of The Simpsons throwing a ball. The thing just dribbled just dribbled out of my hand and landed on the ground pretty much. Um, but it showed me this huge uh, issue that I've got with, with right-hand, right-side dominance and also linear plane, a lot of linear plane problems, which I, I assume is from CrossFit, doing CrossFit and, and not being able to do very much with that non-dominant side. So do you want to talk me through that quickly? Because I want to solve that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate, here's a, uh, here's a really handy tip for you, right? Uh, so Handy tip is don't, don't film yourself doing shit for Instagram when you, <laughs> when you haven't trained to do it. <laughs> No, that's a, that's a, that's a good point, man. Like, um, it's, it, it comes down to basically motor control. So, you know, if you, obviously if you're right hand dominant, everything you do is right handed. 
you know, when was the last time you tried, you switch your knife and your fork when you're eating dinner, man, it's fucking retarded, right? <laughs> so uh, something that I've done to kind of counter that is I actually get up, part of my morning routine is I'll get up and I'll brush my teeth with my left hand every morning to kind of fire up certain parts of my brain and start building those, um, those that, that motor control, that fine motor control in that side. So um, little things like that, man, I do a lot of um, unilateral work one side at a time. Um, where I'll, I really like doing, um, you know, hip airplanes to load up my uh, single leg hip airplanes to load up my hip through different planes of movement, different positions to get all my stabilizers of my hip firing. And then I'll basically do um, something similar with uh, a bottoms up kettlebell um, where I'll be doing some walks and some holds and things like that. Uh, and you'll see when you're doing like bottoms up holds, you know, the right side will be super strong. The left side is going to be a little bit wobbly. So, that just tells you that you're, you know, not connected to certain areas, you know, likely going to be through the, uh, through the shoulder complex, particularly through the, the scapula, you know, so a lot of the times when you are a little bit wobbly on one side, it comes down to poor scapular control and the, the muscles surrounding the, the scapula and the, the, um, the shoulder complex. So I basically address all of those unilateral issues in my warm up. You know, a lot of people go through um, their warm up and they just they just fuck around on the bike or whatever, just basically run around and flick their heels up to their backside and do some high knees and you know what I mean? Like it's to me like that's a waste of time. If you're training every day of the week and you're doing, you know, ten to fifteen minute warm up, that's potentially an hour to an hour and a half of you know, junk movements that aren't really helping you. So, I like to uh, I like to do some uh, some balance work and some uh, some jumps and um, some single leg, single arm work to to kind of fire everything up and make sure I move in multiple directions as well. You know, like you said, we're we're very good at moving in the sagittal plane, which is front to back. But you know, how often do you move lateral side to side, which is this um, frontal plane? Um, and then the and then the transverse plane, which is our rotation. So I make sure I, I add all of those movements into my into my uh, warm ups, set myself up, and then obviously once I get into my into my work, um, I'll uh, I'll try and add sort of some of that sort of stuff in as well. What's your definition of of fitness? What would you say is put you on the spot, mate? Um, well, I mean that's that's a it's a really good question, man, because there is no uh, specific definition of fitness i mean it's it's completely individual to every single person i mean uh for someone who's a marathon runner like fitness is the ability to you know endure you know long arduous you know repetitive movements if you're a power lifter then the definition of fitness is fucking lift as heavy as you can so in my mind i like uh you know i, I train for life man i like to be ready for anything so Fitness for me is being uh, being strong enough, being flexible enough, mobile enough, agile enough, um, powerful enough, conditioned well enough uh, through the different energy systems to be able to live the life that I want. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a rugby player. I still dabble in rugby. Unfortunately, there's no uh, full season over in Thailand, but we get uh, we get some some uh, sevens and tens tournaments come up around Southeast Asia. So, you know, I get invited to those tournaments and I like to be in shape, man, but I'm also dabbling in uh you know, a little bit of MMA and uh, wrestling and kickboxing and Muay Thai and, and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I want to be in shape for that so that, you know, I've already got a really good base. So now I can just start building on my skills. Um, you know, if I want to go hiking on the weekend, if I want to go for a swim, if I want to go kayaking, man, like to me, fitness is fucking freedom. You know, if you're fit enough to be able to do the things that you want to do in life, then you're free to do whatever you want. You know, uh, <laughs> an example of this is uh, I went scuba diving 
uh, maybe a couple of months ago. And uh, I remember this girl was was snorkeling around the boat, and the 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 inflatable pulled up to pull her in, man. And she wasn't strong enough to get out of the water. Like people had to pull her out, you know. So I see this sort of stuff all the time, where where you know people um, require someone else to to kind of help them do the things that they should be able to do themselves. And I'm like, man, to me, that's fitness. Like if I can do the things that I want to do and I'm not limited by anything, then realistically I am fucking free. Right. And yeah. same thing where people start getting older, you know, we don't get old. Um, you know, we don't stop moving when we get old, we get old when we stop moving and you see this all the time. There'll be, you know, a 60 year old who doesn't move, who sits around doing fuck all is retired, doesn't have any purpose, doesn't have anything to do. And they go downhill really quick, you know, and you'll, you'll have 80 year olds that continue moving and that are active and they give themselves some purpose and will fucking jump, get out in the garden and do their gardening or clean the house or, you know, stay quite social and they're in like really good health, you know? So that's, that's important to me, man. Yeah. I had all these questions, but I was just too busy listening to you. <laughs> um, so, so there's the you know CrossFit obviously has all these ideas about what they see fitness as, and they and they want they believe that like a marathon runner is an outlier on the extremities, and a powerlifter is the is an outlier on the other extremities, and and a CrossFitter is in the middle and will outrun a marathon runner over certain smaller you know distances over uh, time over time over time over again, and will outlift you know, won't be able to lift as much as a power lifter, but will be able to lift more than the marathon runner, you know, all this sort of, all this sort of stuff. But I think one of the things that I've noticed with, and and don't get me wrong, I love CrossFit and I love the idea of it and taking fitness like that to the masses. But one of the things that I've noticed is it's, it's all, it is the sport of being fit, but the intensity that I see you put those fighters through in particular can't be matched by, by doing CrossFit either. That intensity at that, because anyone who hasn't done Muay Thai or anyone who hasn't done BJJ and has had their breathing restricted, which is basically what happens when you get punched in the throat or get someone land on or get, or happens when someone's on top of you. In fact, the, well, yeah, someone's putting their whole weight on you. Right. And there's a CrossFit workout called, there's a type of style of workout called fight gone bad, which actually someone yeah. very smart has, has actually analyzed that and gone, this is what that feels like. And if you do do it properly, you do know what that feels like. But um, yeah. watching watching your fighters do the plyometric stuff, then do high intensity intervals, and and then do things that are heavy, repetitious, um, on, on as you said before, on multiple planes, um, very hard to replicate in a CrossFit gym. Yeah, look, mate, I'm a uh, I'm a I'm a CrossFit coach as well. Um, I really like some things that CrossFit's done, um, but I dislike other things that they've done. Again, I'm a CrossFit coach, but I'm, I'm, you know, primarily a strength and conditioning coach. That is my background and that is uh, the methodology that I, that I really like and that I stick to. You know, so you did mention that CrossFit is the sport of fitness. All right, let's break that down. Uh, you also mentioned that, uh, you know, a, a, a CrossFitter is going to beat a marathon runner of a certain distance and time and et cetera, et cetera. All right, now that's that's likely going to be true for elite level athletes. Okay. But for general population people, that is not going to be true. Um, you know, you know, it's funny you say that because there's a, there's a triathlete I used to train with. And, and one of the things with, with um, CrossFit is, as I just said, you know, there's outliers on either end of the spectrum, but there's some, there's some uh, triathletes in, in Dubai, for instance, who would, would mix it in a powerlifting competition <laughs> actually. Yeah. 
There, there's some yeah, yeah, big exactly. boys, big six foot two, you know, crossfit. And I mean, I would beat these guys on a, on a on a sprint triathlon, but only just, only by a few seconds. But these guys yeah, would yeah, outlift yeah. me by a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, let's, again, like, let's break down the sport of fitness, man. Um, you know, it's like me saying, hey, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to play rugby to get better at playing rugby. Okay. That's the CrossFit model. Um, the strength and conditioning model is like, let's break this down into the, the different phases. All right, cool. What do I need to do first? Well, I'm 17 years old. I weigh fucking 60 kilos. I need to put a little bit of size on because I've got dudes running at me that are 90, 100 kilos. So, all right, let's, how do I put muscle on? Let's go through a hypertrophy phase. All right, sweet. That needs to be supported by nutrition, recovery, uh, et cetera. Right. And then I'm going to go, right, I've got this extra muscle now. Let's put on a little bit of strength. So then I'm going to follow, you know, a strength training plan, which is obviously different to hypertrophy. Um, you know, so I might follow that for four to six to eight weeks. Um, and again, nutrition recovery is going to support that. And then once I've built that extra muscle, I've built that extra strength. Cool. Let's transition into power. All right. So it's about maximum output output in the shortest period of time. Right. I follow that for a phase and then I'm going to go into some speed and um, energy system conditioning. Right. So I might have six months to build up to a rugby season. I'm going to, I'm going to do like six to eight weeks of each one of those phases. I might target one phase a little bit more if I'm lacking in that area. Right. So, um, and then throughout the season, it's about then we start putting all that stuff together and kind of balancing it out where I might do, um, you know, some strength work on Monday, Wednesday, uh, I might do some speed and power work on Tuesday, Thursday, Friday is going to be a little bit more mobility, corrective exercise based, uh, recovery based for a game on Saturday. Uh, and then Sunday is going to be probably active recovery again, you know, so then we start putting all that together. And to me, like that is a great way of training. It's like, let's focus on this particular phase let's get this quality adaptation, then maintain that while we move on to the next phase. Whereas the CrossFit, um, the CrossFit models basically, let's just fucking do everything at once. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's, um, that's, that's, uh, I mean the CrossFit model, let's go back to what I just said about the phasing, the CrossFit model. Once I've built that foundation through the strength and conditioning, the different specific phases, then the CrossFit model, I could use that throughout the season, you know, but that's not what's going to get me in shape. Okay. I need to break that down and go like, for example, man, um, you know, uh, I'm not just doing my, my gym work when I'm learning how to play rugby, right? I'm doing, um, I'm practicing my skills and my drills, my passing, I'm running lines, I'm hitting angles. I'm, I'm working on my footwork. I'm, um, I'm practicing my tackling technique, my rucking technique, my mall technique. Um, you know, we're calling these drills for, um, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. you know, for, for line outs and scrums and uh, backs plays and angles and movements and, and things like that. So, you know, all of these skills, if you're trying to do all of them in one session, it's fucking, it's not going to work, man. You know, so um, I do like CrossFit as uh, a method to maintain fitness if you have a good base, 
but I don't like it to, to get people in shape. I mean, if you get people walking into a gym that have been sitting on the couch and doing fuck all and saying, Hey man, like let's do some, uh, let's do some power cleans, um, for time. Let's throw in some fucking handstand pushups and some, some muscle ups. Like fuck man. How many people do you know can do a really good looking power clean with sufficient weight with good technique? Okay. You go and add fucking, you know, uh, reps for time to that. Like technique starts going out the window and then, yeah. you know, how many people, how many people, do, dude, how many people do you know can do a fucking good 10 push-ups yeah. with good technique, maintaining yeah. good control? But yet we see people like, once you add time, once you add that competitive um, component, like technique just goes out the window. So my philosophy is build a really fucking solid base across the spectrum of those 10 aspects of fitness of, you know, strength, speed, power, agility, flexibility, um, you know, balance, uh, coordination, timing, accuracy, all that sort of stuff, man, build a solid base there. And then you can start putting everything together. Okay. The, the, the bigger your base, the higher your peak can be. I like it, man. I like it. I do. And I, and I do find it's taken me years and years to get good at certain aspects of it that, um, I would have been better at if I'd focused more on that base years before. How fit are those other professional boxes that come through? They're pretty fit, man. They stay in shape. Uh, some of the some of the guys stay in shape all year round. Some of the guys just let themselves go a little bit. Um, it just depends on the on the individual. My main guy, Petty Yarn, uh, Siberian kid in the UFC. He's uh, he's dominating, man. He's uh, he he actually approached me about a year, maybe 15, 16 months ago after I'd coached a class. He's like, "Coach, I want to work with you." I was like, "Oh, sweet man. All right, let's do this." Um, so I actually got uh, one of our guys who's. Um, who, who came in, speaks Russian, and uh, we sat down and had a little bit of a chat and said, what do you want to work on? And he goes, everything. And I was like, all right, sweet. Um, and he, he made his UFC debut in Singapore, I think 23rd of June last year. Uh, and then he's just been on a tear, man. He's fought five times, and I put him through four of his camps. Um, and he's he's now ranked number four uh, in the bantamweight division. So he's on the up and up. But, mate, he's, a, he's an absolute weapon. I, I remember when I first walked into the gym and I just saw this dude moving, man. You know what it's like when you see someone who's just really fucking athletic and has, like, that really solid base of those 10 aspects that I just went through before. Um, he just moved really well, man. He was really fluid, really smooth. And you look at someone like that and you're like, man, that dude moves really fucking well. He's really athletic, you know? So, um, so I, I just basically taken my strength and conditioning knowledge. I had to, you know, some, some, some fights I had, uh, you know, only four weeks with him. Um, some fights I had like eight to 10 weeks with him. So, I really had to kind of break it down and go, what do I need to work on most with him? So his last fight, he fought Jimmy Rivera uh, and he dominated him, man. But he was only back for four weeks. He'd, he'd been in um, been in Russia and spent time with his family. He only came back for four weeks um, after he beat John Dodson. Um, and uh, because I only had four weeks, I, was, I, I had to break it down and go, what, what does this dude need? He's already got a solid base. He stays in the gym, you know, pretty much all year round. Um, Jimmy Rivera was a little bit bigger than him. So he was going to have more strength. Um, so I said, well, in four weeks, I'm not going to have enough time to, to build his strength enough to compete with Jimmy. What's Peter good at? And I, you know, I look back at the last year and I was like, man, his balance, his coordination, his timing, his fucking accuracy is awesome. Let's work on that. And that's what we did, man. I did some, uh, I did a heap of plyometric work with him. You've probably seen me, uh, see me post this on, on Instagram. You've probably seen me post his stuff um, that, I, that I was doing with him for that fight, man. Like we literally did like four weeks of plyometric work where it wasn't 
uh, I wasn't just smashing him into the ground for five minutes. That's what a lot of people do. They'll do, oh, he's fighting a, he's fighting a, um, a, a three-round, five-minute fight. Let's get him working for 15 minutes. And, yes, I've done that with him in the past, um, depending on where he was at. But this last fight, I literally just did, oh, man, it was probably like three to five minutes of actual work with him throughout the session. But the rest of the session was, again, the warm-up was building those skills, building his balance, building his coordination, doing some corrective exercise. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, he needs to stay injury-free. So, uh, you know, if he's injured and, and he's redlining all the time, then he's he's likely going to get injured and he's, he's not going to be able to make his fight. So, man, he's, he's one of those dudes that, you know, goes into MMA sparring and wrestling and BJJ and, um, you know, boxing with other coaches and things like that. So he's already training a shitload. So I've got him twice a week. Most of the time, man, I'm actually pulling him back. Yeah, right. I'm not smashing because he's redlining in every other training session. So yeah. I'm like, well, this needs to be balanced out. I'm going to make sure that he stays injury free. So what can I do to, to, to get him working hard, to give him the response that he needs, the stimulus that he needs um, for the correct adaptation without fucking flooring him. And, you know, if I, here's the thing, man, like if I do too much with my fighters and they go into their MMA sparring session, they're, they're, you know, up against other UFC fighters and other high level fighters and they, they can't keep their hands up because their shoulders are tied and they get punched in the face. Then fuck man, I've done too much. Yeah. Right. He is a weapon. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, like you, you've probably seen me, uh, you know, I play around in the rings and the parallettes and I'll, you know, do some handstands and flows and things like that. And, you know, he's seen me do that stuff and like, he's never done it before. And he goes, coach, you show me, you show me. So, uh, sometimes at the end of the session, we'll just play around, man. I'll just, I'll just go through some drills with him. And like, he, he barely speaks any English and I don't speak any Russian. So <laughs> it's all like sign language and <laughs> yeah, right. it's all like, I'm like, you watch me, you do this. And then, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's one of those dudes that just picks things up really quickly, man. He's super athletic. So, you know, I think that's, that's, that's been a big reason to why he's gone so far so quickly. You know, he's got that really, really big base. So now we can, you know, start working on the, the individual um, and specific qualities that he needs for each fight. I'd say that one of the things I've noticed about you, and this this is probably testament to your sort of training methodology, is that your your body awareness is is very good. To be able to do to be able to do a backflip, you know, into a swimming pool landing on your feet, can you do that? Can you do that on the mats as well? Mate, to be honest, I haven't I haven't uh, I haven't played around with that for a long, long, long time. I mean, I can I can flip into a pool all day, but uh, I haven't I haven't. Uh, <laughs> my balls aren't big enough to give that a crack just yet. So it'll, uh, I might find some soft mats and have a crack at that uh, in the near future. Wait yeah. out on that. Watch your space. And handstand walking all day. <laughs> yeah, I've got the strength, mate. My mobility's not amazing, so I've got to kind of counterbalance. But, uh, yeah. Did you see the last Anthony Joshua fight? Uh, I didn't see that one, no. So he... Go and have a look at it on YouTube. He 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 fought a guy, Andy Ruiz. Yeah, yeah. Man, Andy did Ruiz. you see? Did you see that dude fucking um, hitting the hitting the pads before he went into that fight? I didn't. I didn't know much about him, and I didn't realize that he was that like technique. His technique is very good, but he just looked like a bag of shit, and he absolutely, yeah. And, and it got me to thinking, why do I bother? <laughs> Well, it just goes to show, mate, like, you know, you can have all these athletic qualities without having an aesthetic body. You know, a lot of people chase aesthetics, um, but they completely negate or, you know, pay off functionality. And to me, man, like, again, you could look fucking 
awesome. But if you can't move or you move like shit and your, your joints, you know, your muscles can't control your joints through their range of movement, then what's the point, man? Yeah. And the Wilder Fury fight showed that as well. Cause Fury is athletic and he was slipping punches that were grounding other people. And mind you, he got floored and got back up as well. That was a testament to his. <laughs> but that's something I want to ask you that, that sort of that mental strength um, that these fighters have got that you see, is that mental strength something that they, they, they have inherently or is that something that's being, that they're finding through the fighting process, through the conditioning training process, through adversity, through consistency and being exposed to suffering and then liking suffering over time? Uh, I think that's a really good question, mate. Um, I think environment plays a massive role in that. Um, you know, you think about uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of these fighters who are successful have come from like, you know, uh, a kind of a shitty background um, where they were facing adversities as kids and things like that. I mean, it's kind of the similar same story, similar story to myself. You know, I, I, I think people become resilient, you know, it takes a little bit of time and I always talk about progressive overload, you know, so if you come from a good family and, you know, you went to a nice school and you haven't faced too much adversity throughout life, you know, when, when shit does start happening later on in life, it's not that well, it fucking hits you a lot harder. So, you know, you, you're not as well um, prepared for it, but when you, when you go through shit, when you're younger and go through adversity and you go through these tough training sessions that, you build that resilience. It's, would you it's, would you say that that's that's one pathway, and it's a good it's a good path. It's not a great. It's not good. You know, human pathway. It's just a pathway. It's a good pathway that has developed people to be tough. But you look at um, schoolboy rugby, you know, and they've gone to King's College, you know, and they come through and and they're tough as hell. And that makes me think to myself, okay, so there's this there's one pathway which is the come from a crap home, have abusive parents abusive stepdad you know be up against it you know and then have that in the back of your mind as your frame of reference to to become tougher over time and then there's another pathway which is privilege um got everything handed to you but you are pushed like in rowing you are pushed and pushed and pushed and you find you find this inherent thing inside your mind to suffer and then at some point it ticks over where you enjoy the suffering and I'm just wondering, is there those two pathways, do you think? And, and if there is those two pathways, then someone like myself, you know, like guys you know, that have, have had a reasonably easy sort of existence can then become tougher by exposing yourself progressively to harder and harder shit. 100%, mate, 100%. Uh, very well put, man. Um, I think going back to those those two individual references, like, you know, you've got the, the privileged person and you've got the person from the shitty home, I mean, there's a spectrum in between that, right? So it just depends on where you come from. That's your frame of reference. But I really believe that, you know, what you do, what you do in training really reflects how you live your life. Um, you know, you need to, you see these people that put themselves through suffering and they, they train themselves. I mean, if you look at what training is, why do we train? It's we train to get better at certain things, right? So to get better, you know, we need to put our body under stress. So you can get better at suffering. <laughs> Basically, you can get better at suffering. David Goggins speaks speaks about this, uh, and you know he says he says I fucking train to callous my mind. When I get to a point where I want to give up, that's when I know I've got to keep moving. You know, your brain, your where your where your mind goes, your body follows. You went to you go know, into an American accent. You went to go into American accent. Then I saw it. You're gonna start. <laughs> <laughs> no one can talk like him. Um, no, no, it's a fair it's a fair point. And he and he is. I mean, he's the master of you know, brutalizing himself, trying to callous my mind. 
Yeah, I like it. And consistency is the key, the key to a lot of stuff, isn't it? And that, and that's the you know, it's a not so secret um, weapon. I'm really struggling with consistency because of the sort of work that I do at the moment. But I'm consistently not consistent and seeing the results of that. <laughs> Where would you rank consistency, nutrition, sleep? Those of those three, what would you rank the highest? Um, I'll have to say consistency, mate, because. Uh, uh, you know, you could have good sleep for three days of the week, but what are you doing the other four days? So, one, you've got to be consistent with your sleep. You've got to be consistent with your nutrition. Uh, you've got to be consistent with um, your training. Um, so, consistency for me is probably is probably the biggest thing. Yeah. Consistency and structure. You know, you've got to be you, you've got limited time throughout the day. You've got limited time to train. So, having some structure and going and some purpose. Like, what am I? Fuck, I've only got twenty minutes today. What is the most important thing that I want to work on right now? And if I've only got 20 minutes, man, I might just spend 20 minutes fucking deadlifting. I might just build up like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll start at, you know, 60 kilos, go up to 80 kilos, 100 kilos, 120, 140, you know, I'll build up and I might, I might build up to like a five rep max. And that's all I'm doing for that 20 minute training session. You know, if that's, if that's, um, you know, I'm looking at that movement. I'm like, that's going to give me the biggest bang for buck. I want to focus on strength. Cool. I'm in deadlift. If I want to focus on conditioning, cool. I might jump on a, an assault bike. I've only got 20 minutes. I'm going to do, you know, maybe four to five minutes of alactic conditioning, short, sharp, high intensity work, long, um, short duration, long rest. Yeah. And then I might have a couple of minutes rest. And then I might go into some lactic conditioning, 30, 30 for three, uh, you know, four to five rounds, have a couple of minutes rest. And then I might just do five minutes of aerobic conditioning. You know, and that's that's my twenty minute block, man. It just really depends on um, what you're doing. But I think um, structure and purpose, having an understanding of exactly what you want to get out of a training session um, and out of every day, is super important, man. When you know what you're trying to achieve every day, then it's much easier to put those um, put those processes in place throughout the day. This is where you and I are, again quite similar because, and I would say it's because of our sniper training, sniper backgrounds, honestly, because yeah, man, because structure. As a sniper, everything is structured and templated, believe it or not. There's not too much deviation from, you know, from, from that, that, that sort of existence. And structure replaces, in my mind, motivation because motivation is really easy to, to disappear. Whereas if you've got structure, then you've got the next thing to get to. And I mean, I, I see myself, I go to the, in my gym in the garage here when I don't get to CrossFit and go, okay, I'm going to do a training session. If I just go in there without something written on the board, I'll just poodle fake around. But if I've written it on the board the night before, well, that has to be done. And, and it can be, yeah. and sometimes it can be brutal. Like, you know, there's, there's a whole heap of workouts I've got on whiteboards all over my gym that I'll just walk in there and go, that. And I'll just start doing it. Mate, that's a great point. Uh, and, you know, you look at what you're doing there. You're, if you're writing that on the board the night before, there's your preparation, man. You know that that's going to be fucking hard. So you're already starting to prepare your mind for that. You know, and then you, when, you, when you're going in, you might be dreading it, but you're also like, right, all right, this fucking, this is probably going to suck. This is going to hurt. But you're already setting, you're, you're already setting the scene in your mind, you know. Yeah. So um, I think that's an important thing. Um, you said something else there about, about the structure um, which I really liked. If you have that structure, then it's like, right, well, I've got this scheduled in, so this is what I'm going to do. And then the discipline comes into play. You know, motivation is what gets you started, but it's those days where 
you know, you don't feel like getting it. Like I swim every morning, man. I fucking suck at swimming. I'm going to my pool. I'm swimming every morning because I want to get better at it. And it's also, you know, it allows me to kind of have a little bit of time, go through some mindfulness and just focus on my breathing. You know, if I'm not focusing on my breathing, I'm not focusing on my technique, then I just sink like a rock. So, you know, there's some days in the morning where it's raining and it's, it's, you know, it doesn't get cold over here, but it's raining and, uh, you know, I want to have a, an extra 30 minutes in bed and I, I don't want to get out of bed, but that's where the discipline comes into play. And I'm like, well, I know that getting out of bed and swimming and watching the sunrise and having a stretch, that makes me feel good, man. It's a fucking awesome start to the day. So I'm just going to get up and do it. And, you know, the first couple of minutes suck, but then once I start moving, I'm like, oh man, I'm really, I'm really grateful that I did that. Do you experiment much with diet and stuff like that? Do you, Sean? Um, not too much, not too much. I mean, I've kind of found what works for me and, um, I don't track my food or my macronutrients or anything like that, but I'm like very aware, man, because I've been, you know, I've been in this, been in this, um, been in this space for a while now. So, uh, I have tracked in the past and I get an understanding of, you know, I know I can look at a plate of food and go, it's got this many calories and ma- macronutrients are roughly this. And, you know, I'm getting these quality micronutrients in and et cetera, et cetera. You know, so I've, I've got a really good awareness of it now and I can feel how, uh, you know, those things affect my body. So, um, you know, I'll pretty much adjust my, I, I intuitively eat basically. So depending on what I've, what I've just done, depending on what I'm just about to do will determine how I'm going to eat. You know, if I'm training first thing in the morning, then I'm going to have something probably an acai bowl or something like that, a little bit more kind of carb heavy, um, you know, with fruits and things like that to fuel that workout. And then I'm probably going to have some proteins and maybe, you know, piece of fruit afterwards, um, and a little bit of fat so that I can, you know, uh, promote recovery and hormone regulation and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, I'll probably cut out carbs for the rest, not cut out carbs, but I'll reduce them a little bit more for throughout the rest of the day. Um, if I'm not training again, uh, and I'll focus on more of my, my proteins and fats for my recovery and hormone regulation. Um, you know, so I pretty much eat intuitively, man. I don't, I don't track anything. Uh, if I do want to make some uh, big changes, like if I've just changed my training uh, program and I'm, I'm, I want to work on, you know, some max strength work or some max power or something like that, then I'll probably adjust my my nutrition a little bit, and I might track if I want to if I want to uh, make some adjustments to my body composition. If I want to put on a little bit of muscle or burn a little bit of fat, then I'm I'm obviously going to track, see where my calories are at. I'll do that for a week, see where my, where my baseline's at. I won't change anything. I'll track as accurately as I can, get a feel for where I'm at, and then and then I'll go, all right, if I, if I want to burn some fat, then I'll put myself into a calorie deficit depending on where my baseline is, and then I'll, you know, and then I'll start adjusting my nutrition. Um, if I need to make any adjustments to my macronutrients, increase my protein, decrease my carbs, for, uh, for example, then I'm, I'm going to start doing that. But then my training program is going to reflect my diet, and I think that's where a lot of people go wrong, man, is they – they, they go through their training program, but then kind of supports that. Whereas, you know, that is a way to do it, but I personally prefer to, right, if I want to make some changes to body composition, I want to go up or I want to go down in weight, uh, then I look at my diet, uh, I adjust my nutrition, and then my training supports that. An example of this is if, if, I'm, if I'm going into, if I want to cut, um, cut a little bit of body fat off, uh, I need to be in a deficit. So obviously I'm not going to be doing like building up to a, I'm not going to follow a five, three, one Wendler fucking strength training program. You know, it's going to be a lot more volume, um, far less intensity, uh, lower rest periods and things like that. Yeah. Understood. Which is what I'm going through at the moment. And, and, and how's that 10% looking, mate? 
Oh my god! I mean, I'm a bit off more than I can chew, and I'm and I'm getting ground rushed. You know, like when you're parachuting and suddenly the grounds are like rushing towards you. That's November. Um, so I'm, I'm I've bought a um I've I've bought a, a, a blood glucose keto um testing kit, and I'm and I'm looking to see where where I'm sort of sitting during the day, um, fat burning and the like. And it's interesting. It's really interesting. In fact. If someone's if someone's trying to work out their diet themselves without someone like you or a dietitian, I, I put it down to um, it's almost like walking into the jungle by yourself and thinking you're going to get out the other side because it's so bloody confusing. And the things that the things that you can do to your, to your body that you don't realise you're doing with, with certain foods, um, it's just incredible. Like I, I've been testing uh, my ketones. If you have a glass of orange juice, a few hours later, you've wrecked that. It's done. You're done. Oh, yeah, of course. You're done. I mean, and it's not – it's so nutrient, you know, carb dense, you know. And so yeah. when I look at my kids, I'm like, Jesus, that's what's going on <laughs> with that Well, kid. dude, you think, you, you think about this, man. If you're having a glass of orange juice, I mean, one of their, one of their marketing points is – Hey, it's this has got the same amount of vitamin C as, or this is four oranges worth of fucking um, worth of nutrients, dude. When was the last time you sat down and fucking ate four oranges? Yeah, yeah, right. And when you, when you're eating a normal orange, right, you've got the fiber. When you're having orange juice, that fiber's been removed, so it's like a it's like a fucking shot of you know the fiber's going to slow down the absorption of the of the the sugars and um you know it's going to slow down the um the the transfer of that glucose into the bloodstream. So yeah. when you when you're having that orange juice, it's like a you've removed that fiber and it's just a oh. shot of sugar straight in the bloodstream. Yeah, I mean I was having bacon and eggs and I was testing before and after to see what was going on, and then um, when I did it. A few mornings in a row, and it, and it was taking me back out of ketosis, and I couldn't work out why that was happening. And then I realised, well, I'm not using coconut oil; I'm using bloody sunflower oil, and just little bloody <laughs> things like that changes it. it cha- your body goes, oh shit, fuel, and and then and then your yeah, liver yeah. stops producing the ketones. It's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a really murky area. And dietitians must be there must be some dietitians that are all over it. I'm sure there are, but in Australia, we're years behind the states with this stuff. And there's supplements too, yeah. like, you know, pre-workouts, you, you know, be warned if you think you're in ketosis and you're taking pre-workouts and they've got carbs in them and, you know, or flavorings that, that, that they're not registering as carbs, you know, and then, and then the protein, protein powders, the amount of sugars in the protein powders, like it's a, it's, yeah, you can just go flat footed with the whole thing. You think you're going to be on this crazy ketone diet and really all you're doing is calorie restricting but just a little bit. You're not actually using fat for fuel. When you then go to do high intensity interval training, that fuel's not there, and you're absolute. I'm absolutely flat during those high intensity interval training. Exactly, mate. And here's the thing, man. This is this is why I'm not dogmatic about um, you know the diet or the training program or anything because it's it's completely individual specific. You know, so I'll go I'll go back to uh, your first question about how to how to you know what's some advice for people to kind of fucking wade through the bullshit and get to what actually matters. Um, so the first thing I, I like to tell my clients to do is, is actually track their food. You know, so back in Australia, I'd, I'd ask people if, if people want to work with me, they come in, we'd have a conversation. I'd see where they're at and say, what are your goals? What do you want to do? All right, cool. The first thing you need to do is track your food. This is how you do it. Download my fitness pal. You can use fat secret, lose it, blah, 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 whatever. Okay. And I've, I've basically got a um, PDF document printed out that walks people through this process. So all right, track your food for a week. 
Uh, don't change anything if you drink beer every night or have ice cream every night or a bottle of wine, blah, blah, blah. Don't change anything because if you start changing anything right now, you're not giving me an accurate representation of what your start point actually is. That's the first thing I do, man, is I get people to track accurately. Uh, a week later, we'll come and, and sit back down. And if people hadn't tracked, I'll be like, sorry, I can't work with you. Like you've fucking given me nothing. I don't know where your start point is, but yet you're asking me to get you to a finish point. Like that just doesn't make sense. I might, you know, I might be heading in this direction, but because your start point, I don't know where it is, might be going in the wrong direction, you know? So that's the first thing, get people tracking. Um, and then again, that gives me an idea of where they're at, how many calories they're eating, where their baseline metabolism's at, uh, what their macronutrient ratios are throughout the week. Uh, if they're potentially, um, you know, uh, nutrient deficient in micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, etc. Um, so I kind of have a look at where their, where their start point is. And then we go, right, what are your goals? Where's your end point? How do we get you there? So now we can start putting those steps in place. Uh, and the other thing about tracking man is if I start asking more questions and I dive into details about, hey, all right, cool, how are you sleeping? All right, I slept pretty well this night. I didn't sleep very well that night. All right, cool, what did you eat for dinner? And then we can start making these connections with, um, you know, how they're feeling, uh, how their sleep's affected by certain foods that they eat. Do you, ha- do you have any energy crashes throughout the day? Yeah, I do actually at like 3.30. I normally feel a little bit flat and blah, blah, blah. Cool, what are you eating for lunch? what's going on throughout the day. And then we start making these connections. Yeah. My stomach normally feels a little bit bloaty in the morning, right? What do you look, what are we looking at there? Maybe you're having some milk with your coffee or, you know, you're having some gluten or something that you may be intolerant to. So then we can start connecting the dots with how people are feeling, what they're eating, what the energy levels are like, what their productivity is, um, you know, and we can start addressing that, but it also educates people on how to, again, get to a point where I'm at where I can intuitively eat. I can look at a plate and be like, well, there's roughly this many calories. I don't have to fucking track. I don't have to stress myself out about it. But, you know, now I can eat what I want. An example of this is, you know, and, and I also ask people to track their um, track their steps throughout the day because that's one of those things, man. Some days, I mean, when I was in Tasmania, I'd have a busy Monday, Tuesday. Wednesday would be light. Thursday, Friday would be heavy. Um, so Wednesday would be my kind of admin day where I'd go into the gym and I'd train a couple of clients uh, over a couple of hours. I'd train myself and then I'd be on my laptop all day, you know, and I'd look at my I'd look at my steps, man, and I'd be hitting only, you know, 6,000 steps for the day. Well, and then, four, lower four your, kilometers. then lower your eating dependent on what you're doing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then if, if, you know, a Thursday, for example, would be a heavy day, man. I'd be in the gym. I'd be training myself. I'd be training clients. I'd be, you know, I'd be super busy. I'd be back to back with clients. And then I'd go to rugby training in the afternoon. Those days I was hitting 26,000 steps, you know, which was 18 kilometers. So there's a, there's a 14 kilometer difference from day to day, you know, to, so to eat exactly the same for those two days. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Does it? You know, we need to add, here's the thing, man. I, I look at, I look at, um, nutrition as fuel. It's fuel for my body. It's fuel to support my, uh, training. If I can, if I'm having the right type of fuel, if I'm having carbohydrates before my training session, then I'm going to be able to, that's my jet fuel. So I can, I can, you know, work a lot harder. I can push my body a little bit more. I can lift a little bit heavier. I can run a little bit faster. You know, I'm pushing my body harder, um, so I'm, I'm creating that stimulus. Then after training, I'm looking at my proteins for reparation, recovery, rebuilding, and then I'm looking at my fats for hormone regulation to support that process, right? So then, um, you know, I'm, I'm fueling the workout, I'm fueling the recovery, and I'm fueling, um, you know, those processes that happen behind the scenes to fuel that recovery. It was only a few months ago that I worked out that a box of pizza shapes um, is more than 
one <laughs> one serving. So that's that's how far. That's how. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, hey, hey, Sean, thanks very much for being on the Warrior You podcast. I think we do another one pretty soon, man, where we where we just talk all things training and and go from from zero to hero. Um, and maybe maybe we'll even do that over there because I might I might bring all the recording gear over and come and get my ass handed to me for a couple of weeks and do hey, some. Recordings. That would be absolutely. Yeah, that'd I'd be amazing, that. man. I'd love that. Yeah, that would be cool. And I do think it's a very enviable lifestyle that you've got. And and I know the only reason that you've got 5,500-something followers on Instagram is because you don't spend most of your time like I do on there just promoting it. Because if people go on and have a look at your Instagram, they'd be like, holy shit, this dude is legit and this training place is legit. Like Tiger Muay Thai, I've got friends that go over there from the UAE, go over there and do camps like they, they love it. So, yeah, hats off to you, mate, and well done for – you know, creating your creating the life that you wanted in the way that you wanted it, and um, what what can people find you if they want to reach out and find out more on Instagram at Cobes K O B E S underscore P F T uh, Sean Cobra on Facebook. Uh, I don't have my website or anything up at the moment. I'm, I'm, I do have an online coaching business as well, but that's kind of a side project right now. Uh, I'm focusing most of my time on on uh, you know coaching fighters at at Tiger Muay Thai. So. Um, and Tiger Muay Thai. Make it over, guys. Awesome. Thank you very much, Brand. Much appreciated, mate. You're a legend, man. I've been following you for a while as well. I love the content that you're putting out. I love the guests that you get on, uh, and I'd love to do this again in the future. Cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. You take care. Righto. Just before we go, I want to wrap a few things up. First of all, a few podcasts that I've personally listened to this week have been the Rich Roll podcast, where he interviewed pro boxer Mike Lee, who's actually involved in a title fight tonight, uh, the 20th of July. So I'm interested to see how that goes. I also listened to The Man That Can, um, Lockie Stewart creation, devoted to men who want to understand more about themselves. Actually, he's got so much product there. Go and have a look at it, uh, the man that can. And before I go, I just want to let you know that I'm teamed up with Patreon. Uh, This is so that you can donate some assistance to the podcast. Obviously, putting all this together each week comes at a financial and time cost. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can head to www.patreon.com forward slash warrior you, and you can throw in whatever you feel like. Um, It's greatly appreciated. And there are some cool giveaways on the site too for different tiers of sponsorship. So please check it out. Thanks to my newest uh, patron donator, which is Jono, for the $5 a month. Cheers, brother. And also to Tony Watt. Uh, Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. And I'll be in touch. All right. See you guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.